The following is a resource from the Dwark Hill Study Center. Dwark Hill exists to help Christians take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this lecture. Well, last week we began to look at the letters to the seven churches. Again, we're studying the book of Revelation together, this challenging vision that is, uh, that is given to us by Jesus Christ through an angel to John, to the seven churches, and through the seven churches uh, to us. And I really appreciate uh, uh, Linda Lou's prayer there, in the prayer that this not only be an academic study as we think through this book, but but that we work and pray that the Lord applies this uh, to our hearts. Stud- the Lord's not impressed with study. He's not impressed with people gathering together to learn about Him. Ultimately, the end goal is that we know Him. The greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not to know about Him, but to know Him. And so, as we study this, as we think particularly through the letters, it's important that we be asking the Lord and and having eyes to see how this applies to us. We mentioned that these letters are now given in the book of Revelation to seven churches, and that in this vision, the number seven is significant. All the numbers are significant. Every vision, an image in the vision is significant. But seven, as we said, connotes the idea of completeness. And so where you see seven, it's not trying to say something secretive. It's not trying to speak in code. It's just speaking in symbol. And seven means complete. So when the letters go to the seven churches, uh, we understand this to mean to all the churches. Something is being said here um, to us through them. So it's important as we read through these, and we've gone through two uh, churches, the church of Ephesus and the church of Smyrna, that it's important that we be asking where do we fit? Maybe where do our congregations fit? That's fine. You, you might not have tremendous uh, influence over your particular congregation. Maybe you do. And then you should ask if you're an elder in the church, a minister. It's very important. Remember, these were written to the angels of the churches, to the, the messengers, to the pastors of the churches. But what you can do, all of us can do, is ask wh- what church that we've looked at or we're looking at really describes me. You know, where, where do I fit? What church do, seems like, uh, like me? Now, we've looked at two. We've looked at Ephesus. And Ephesus is a church that had its theological ducks in a row. Oh, it loved theology. It was commissioned by Paul to be, beware of wolves that would come in generations later and try to destroy the church. In Acts 20, Paul uh, warned them of that. And they took that real seriously. And the letter to the Ephesians said, you've taken that seriously, you've been real discerning, you've turned away false prophets, you don't tolerate wicked men, awesome. But what you've done negatively is you've begun to forsake your first love, that is your love for your neighbor, your love for your community, your love for uh, those around you. And they were reprimanded for that. So we have to be careful. But then on the other hand, he said, but you do hate the Nicolaitans, and I hate them too, and that's, that's great. So you love theology, but you're losing your love and care for people. You're seeing them as errors to be fixed instead of people to be loved, sinners to be forgiven. So be careful of that. But that doesn't mean abandon theology, remember we said. No, no, you, you hate the Nicolaitans, their, their, their wickedness and their idolatry. And, uh, and that's great. So keep up with the truth, 
But you, you need to build up the, the love for people. And then we ended last week by looking at Smyrna. And, and Smyrna we're, uh, was told, listen, persecution is coming. You know, you've been faithful, but persecution is coming. There was nothing negative to say to Smyrna, but they were warned that persecution is coming and they should be ready. And then we spent some time at the end considering the martyr, the great martyr from, uh, from Smyrna, Polycarp, and uh, spent some time uh, reflecting, and considering, reflecting on and considering uh, how this man, who sat in the church most likely and heard that this letter read, took it real seriously and was prepared. And when his time came and he heard the voice, play the man, Polycarp, he played the man and was willing to go and be burned alive. And as he did, uttered that great prayer that we, uh, that we read last week and that's posted on our, on our site. So that's where we are. And now we move uh, forward and we, we need to jump right in because we've got a lot to cover here. And we'll try to zip through these churches and see if we can get to uh, the vision of God's throne in chapter 4. But first, let's jump to the third church. This is the church of Pergamum. The Church of Pergamum, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Just to, again, a little background as we look at these different churches. Pergamum, now remember, the, the letter starts at Ephesus. John is writing from the island of Patmos, which is about 35 miles off the coast of Turkey, uh, between Turkey and, and uh, Greece. He's about 35 miles off the coast in a penal colony. And so he sends this letter. It goes to Ephesus. So you're looking at me. It goes to Ephesus, and then it's going to go north and circle around. It's going to go to these seven churches in a row. So we've gone to Ephesus, we go north to Smyrna, and then a little further north to Pergamum. Pergamum was a local capital, a province. The governor was there. It's a regional, regional capital. It was very cultured, had one of the world's largest libraries, maybe the second largest in the world at that time, 200,000 volume library. I mean, here we're talking, you know, the first century. That's, that's a lot of books when we don't have a printing press. It's pretty impressive. So they were very cultured. Very religious, many temples. You've got the uh, imperial temples and temples to all the different gods, the Greek gods in particular. And one thing that they were known for was their altar to Zeus, who was known as the savior god. And this great altar to Zeus burned 24-7. There were sacrifices made on that altar 24-7. Smoke went up in, uh, in honor of Zeus. And in that city of Pergamum is a Christian church. Now, the pattern uh, that you see there, uh, which is part of it uh, on the outline on the screen, um, is similar to the others with some little differences. But all of them begin first with Jesus' identification. So in each of these letters, Jesus identifies himself uh, to, his, uh, uh, to his church. So in verse 12 of chapter 2, to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged Sword. Most of the others, he gives two references. And remember, all these references, most of them, we'll see a couple exceptions, but most of the references come from the vision back in chapter 1, that awesome vision of, of Jesus that John sees and that makes him fall dead before him. And little pieces of this are taken and manifested to the churches, usually that have some influence on, uh, or something particular to say to this church. And for Pergamum, which was a capital city where the sword of authority rested. Right? The, thord, uh, the, the sword of Caesar, the imperial provincial power, since it was a capital, rested in Pergamum. 
Jesus reveals himself here to this church as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, right? It's sword against sword. Who, who's the real authority here? And that's really going to be the rest of the book. The beast with his great sword and his great power, or, or is it Jesus Christ with the sharp two-edged sword? So Jesus reveals himself here as the one with the sharp two-edged sword, the true sword, the one that will slay his enemies in chapter 19. Jesus means business. Secondly, the affirmation. So Jesus reveals himself first as the one with the two-edged sword, and then he makes an affirmation to this church. I know where you live. Which sounds very intimidating, right? I know where you live. You know, I'll come get... But that's not quite how he means it. He means it here as an encouragement, right? And you can see what he says here. He's recognizing that the church in Pergamum does have their hands full. I know where you live. Where? Where Satan has his throne. So you're, right, you're in the capital city. And in this capital city, Satan has his throne. And I, I recognize that. that you, you all are in a tough spot here. He's later going to say where Satan lives. So twice in this letter, he will reference Satan with, uh, with the city of Pergamum. And again, this opens something up to us uh, into the rest of the vision. You know, Paul says when he tells us to, to put on the full armor of God, he warns us. He warns us how to locate our enemy, right? What does he say in Ephesians 6? We do not war against flesh and blood. And yet it's so easy to see flesh and blood as the enemy, right? That they're the bad guys. They're the problems. If we could just get rid of them, we'll fix it. Maybe you feel that way in today's political climate, right? Just think about what's going on down in D.C. right now. Right? It's, it's the other party that's the problem. They're the enemy. And even Christians get wrapped up into this. I get wrapped up into this. But Paul, I mean, Paul, John and Jesus is doing what the whole book is meant to do, pulling back the veil and letting you see reality. It's not the provincial governor that's the problem. He's not, he's not the enemy that we're up against. This is Satan's throne. This is where Satan lives. I mean, there are real enemies here, and this is a real serious battle. But let's be real careful to locate the enemy. Now, as we'll see through the book, Satan, especially when we get out to like chapter 13 and so forth, we'll see Satan working through the beast, which, as I said, for, for these readers, they were not debating like we do in our churches today. Well, what, what do you think the beast is? For them, they, they knew it was Rome. It was Rome. And Rome was acting like a beast. Domitian was acting like a beast. Nero had acted like a beast. And the other emperors were going to uh, oppose them in, in beastly ways. And in that image, when we see the, the beast rising up out of the sea, there on the seashore, empowering the beast, is the dragon. Right? Rome is an enemy to the church. Rome stands to oppose the church and, and will crush the church and destroy many Christian lives and homes and businesses. But behind the beast, the beast is not the ultimate problem. Behind the beast is the dragon. We as Christians are part of a cosmic battle. And though we tend to look at problems, political problems and economic problems and local problems as the real problem we're involved in, John and Jesus is saying, no, 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 lift up your eyes. There's a bigger issue here. There's a bigger battle to fight and there's a bigger enemy. And he recognizes it here. The affirmation is, I know where you live. You live where Satan has his throne. And I think what he means by this is the imperial 
seat of power, but also the imperial cult. As we said, Domitian is the first emperor who is beginning to be worshipped while he's alive. Other emperors were worshipped. They were usually worshipped after they died. But Domitian is being called God while he's alive and while he's reigning. And so I think all of this represents the, the image, Satan's throne. So Jesus makes an affirmation. I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you live. You live where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. So here we have this recognition that you live where Satan's throne is. These latecomers, you know, it's just so rude. But um, that's all right. Uh, you, you live where Satan's throne is, but you remain true. You remain true right in the face, right in the teeth of the provincial Roman power there in Pergamum. And even at a great cost. Look, look what he says next. You remain true to my name and you did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. I mean, these guys, we think we got it rough. They're right in the middle of it. And this character, Antipas, who we don't know much about, the, the, the legend, uh, legend, the tradition has it that he was actually roasted to death in a hot metal bowl, that he was just cooked to death. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's the, the tradition, that that's the way he was killed. And, and Rome had, had ways of killing you, and it wasn't, it wasn't always pretty. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, and frankly, for our case, it doesn't matter. But, but people are dying now in Pergamum. So the battle is coming home there in this place where Satan lives and where his throne is. And he's affirming them, hey, but you guys in Pergamum, you know, this I have in your favor. I'm, I'm really happy about this, that you have not cowered in the face of persecution, even in the midst of real casualties. But just as a little side note, I do love how he speaks of Antipas here in this text. He says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness... I was talking in church last night. We were down at church and we were talking about what it means, Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And somebody said, well, it's fear like reverent awe, not like quake in your boots fear. And, uh, and oh, yeah, that's partly true. But what we've seen in Revelation is it's also quake in your boots fear, right? It's, it's drop dead fear. It's the kind of fear that makes Isaiah face plant before the holiness of God in Isaiah 6. He's just, poof, down he goes. And John, poof, down he goes. And Jacob at, at the Bethel, he's quaking in fear. And Moses is quaking. I mean, it's, it's you, you get a vision of the Lord, and it's not just, wow, it's poof, down I go. And so while Revelation has that, we've already noted, haven't we, that in that image of tremendous awe that creates such fear, so that John drops dead, it's coupled with unbelievable tenderness. So that the same Jesus that makes John drop, as we said, doesn't just say, you may rise, servant, but reaches out his right hand in, John, in Revelation 1 and lifts John up. This same Jesus we will see later in some moving moments that he comes to his suffering church and, we're told, wipes away every tear from their face. The same Jesus that makes you drop dead, is, it plays the role of a parent that, that reaches up to a suffering, crying child and with the thumb on the cheek just wipes away the tears. It's, it's an unbelievably gentle and moving and tender image. And so here, I think, with Antipas. He's not just, and hey, you were courageous even in the days of Antipas. 
No, it's in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. He's not just a faith, he's my faithful witness. And remember, we said witness means martyr, right? That's, how, that's what faithfulness looked like. All right, so we've got the affirmation. Let's move on to D, the chastisement. So with all these churches, many of them, word of encouragement, but then, hey, I've got this against you. All right, so we've got, we've got a chastisement here in verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So well done, Pergamum. You've been courageous and, and the threats have not intimidated you. But, but one thing I do have against you, or a few things actually, you have people there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know really much about the Nicolaitans. We just assume they're teaching the same thing. You have this I have against you, Pergamum. Awesome job in the face of threats. But while you've guarded the one door, you've left the other door wide open. And Ron, I remember you bringing this up. Uh, uh, Ron Bonagura brought up the point at the end of the first class when I was talking about how if we lived in Syria right now, if we were Christians in Syria with the threat of death constantly looming over us, we would, we'd understand a lot of revelation a lot better. It would, it would move us a lot more. And, and Ron mentioned, uh, uh, importantly, at the end of that, that, that you know, the threats of, of death are not the only threat we face, right? There's also the threat of temptation. And that's absolutely right. And the, and the book of Revelation presents, really, the enemy in, with two faces, and we'll see this as we move toward the end. But the enemy in the book of Revelation has two faces. One is a horrible face, the face of the beast. Just rips you apart, tramples you, kills you, does terrible things to you. Scary. Threats. Pergamum has got that locked up. They, they, have, they have girded themselves up with courage. But the other face of the enemy is the face of the harlot. Right? The face of the alluring, beautiful woman that woos you in, that seduces you. And we'll see, the image is that of adultery and fornication that we commit with these other gods and with the enemy that way. And so here we've got a problem, right? The, uh, those in Pergamum have steeled themselves against the threats where Satan lives. But they've allowed this teaching of Balaam. Now, I'm sure there was not a guy named Balaam. He's referring to Numbers 20, uh, 22 to 24, the story of Balaam and Balak. And you remember, if you remember in that story... Balak wants to curse Israel. So he sends Balaam out to do it. But every time Balaam tries to curse Israel, blessing comes out. And he can't, he can't get him. And he goes back to Balak. Can't do it. So Balak comes up with plan B. Introduce him to the Moabite women. Let the Moabite women seduce them. Which leads to sexual immorality. And then with this union with the Moabite women, they begin to worship the gods of the Moabitess. And all of a sudden, the Lord then comes in anger against his own people and sends plagues against them and kills the 24,000 people. And that is what uh, the Lord is referencing here in Pergamum. You, you all have done a great job with courage, but you've left the door open. There's this teaching of Balaam going around. That is, some within Pergamum are teaching the people, hey, it's okay to do these cultural things. It's not a problem to commit sexual immorality. It's fine. And it's okay probably to commit idolatry. Now, the, the, the type of idolatry that's being spoken of here uh, is, it, the reference is eating food sacrificed to idols. Right? It teaches them to eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. 
Now, the eating food sacrificed to idols is a complicated thing. We, we don't have too much time to get into it here. But if you remember in Paul's letters, to the, particularly to the Corinthians, there's a lot of struggle over this. Because in these, in these um, temples to these other gods, they would hold these feasts. And if you came and participated in them, you'd eat the food, you know. The food that's left over from the sacrifices would be sold in the market. And there were many Christians who were very offended by this. They say, you shouldn't eat that. That's demonic food. That, that food's cursed. And Paul says, no, no, no. You go in the market, buy whatever meat you want. You can eat that meat. An idol is nothing. Don't worry about it. But on the other hand, you don't go into the temples and participate in the meals and eat the food there. It's so one thing they're selling it in the marketplace. Fine. But there is a fine line. And apparently here in Pergamum, they're doing more than just buying meat in the, in the marketplace. They're engaging in the cultic services that would, that would have these meals. And these were probably these guild, these patron gods of the guilds. As we said, not only did the guilds worship the imperial cult, but they worshiped the god of their thing. You know, you were into wool, there was a god you honor, and he blesses your textile industry. And you were a, a coppersmith, and there was a god you worship. And the silversmiths, and they worshiped Diana or Artemis, you know. So it was probably that. And this, these characters are running around teaching them, hey, it's okay to engage in this, don't worry about it. Everybody does it. You just got to offer up a little incense to these gods, participate in the meals, and hey, God understands. You got to keep your job. You know, it's, that, it's probably that kind of thing. It doesn't really matter. Well, the Lord comes to them and says, no, no, it, it really does matter. So next we get the exhortation. The exhortation is very simple. Repent, verse 16. Repent, therefore. And then we have the warning. Otherwise, so this is... Uh, this is our warning somewhere on our thing here. Yeah, warning, F warning. The warning then comes. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So listen, either you repent or I'm coming. And I'm coming with the sword that I introduced myself with. That yes, it's up against the sword of Caesar, but now I will turn that sword on you. I mean, this is hard talk by the Lord to his people. You either repent of the idolatry or I show up with the sword and I make war against you. The Lord, is not, the Lord does not take sexual immorality and he does not take idolatry lightly. And if you look, I, I just challenge you, go back and read Romans chapter 1 and look at the link between idolatry and sexual immorality. So there, is a, there is an interesting link there that in Romans 1, when the people, right, although they knew God, they neither worshipped him nor gave thanks to him, but they exchanged the truth for the lie, their foolish hearts were darkened, therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires, to the lusts of their heart, to the degrading of their bodies with one another. As, as I just look around our sexed-up culture, the sexed-up culture of the West, the sexed-up culture of America, where we are so numb to the sexual immorality of our own culture. It seems to me that there's a link with that and idolatry. So that we have to ask, where we see sexual immorality run wild, we should, we should draw the conclusion, idolatry is running wild. We've got to guard our own hearts against this. The Lord does not take this lightly. But then we get a promise. The Lord is so gracious. And even though they're struggling with this, he turns around. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. And this is in every letter, right? 
To him who overcomes, there's this promise. And just a word on that. The Christian life is a battle. I don't care which of these churches you think describes you or your local congregation. The Christian life is a battle and it requires overcoming. John Owen, the Puritan theologian, said this way, either you will be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's one, there's no neutral ground. Either you're going to war against sin and killing it in your life, or sin is going to be killing you, but it's one or the other. And the Bible, every letter here to all the church calls us to overcome. That's got to be, we get, do you feel that? Do you feel that in your Christian life? Do you feel like today I got to wake up and I've got to overcome? Or do we just, again, kind of just drop it into neutral and say, well, another day being a Christian. No, it's not like that. It's war. So the promise, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name on it, uh, known only to him who receives it. Put simply, I think the promise here, though these are some tricky images, I don't know the full depths of them, to be honest with you. The hidden manna, we think, might be the manna in the Ark of the Covenant, inaccessible to everybody. It's in the Ark of the Covenant. But to him who overcomes, he will eat of that. That's, that is, he'll eat with me. He'll fellowship with me in my, in my very presence, right? In the very throne room of God, my traveling throne room. You will eat with me there. And you receive a white stone. The image of a white stone, though there's a lot, of, you read commentaries on this, there's all these different ideas about what the white stone is. I'll tell you the one I'm going with, all right? Uh, when you, when you uh, participated in the great sporting events, the races, the winners many times would receive these white stones as sort of a tribute to you've won, and it got you into things, and it particularly got you into, it was like your ticket, into the great victory banquet. Now, is that what's being referenced here? I, I have no idea. But maybe. We've got hidden manna. We've got this white stone being given. I think we can go with, though we wouldn't want to make too much on it, that, look, if you overcome, you'll be invited to the great banquet. You'll have access into the great banquet. And we know that this letter ends with a great banquet. It ends with the wedding banquet. So we'll, we'll go with that. And a name on the stone that only you will know. And I think the idea there is Jesus also gets this name at the end of the book, a name that only he knows. And so I think the best we can make out of the name that only you will know is that you will be in Jesus Christ and you have a role within Christ that is unique to you. We each have a place within the body of Christ that's unique to us. Okay? All right, let's, let's, uh, keep, let's keep rolling here. Let's go right to uh, Thyatira. So the next church is Thyatira. This is the middle church. It's the longest of the letters and probably the least known of all the cities. But it's just the Lord places it right in the middle and gives it the most attention in terms of a letter. It was a military outpost for Pergamum. So now we're starting to, now we're starting to curve. We're going clockwise. And now we're starting to curve uh, toward, the, uh, toward the east. And, and Pergamum was set back. And in the valley leading up to Pergamum was this city, Thyatira. And so it was a military outpost. It was conquered many, many times. It just kind of laid exposed, poor Thyatira. But they were sort of the first, the first, you know, it was a warning. When Thyatira gets conquered, Pergamum, you know, knew that they're in trouble. So they got to be ready to fight. They were probably best known for their trade guilds. If you're a student of the book of Acts, you know uh, the woman Lydia. Lydia was a convert of Paul's uh, in Macedonia. He met her in Philippi. And uh, Lydia, Lydia took the gospel back to Thyatira. And Lydia was a, a uh, manufacturer of purple cloth. 
and uh, which was in high demand, particularly for nobility and royalty. And so she manufactured that. She ran a business in Thyatira, and then she sold it. And she bumps into Paul uh, somewhere, some distributing it out in Philippi, and, uh, which was in Macedonia, across the, across the Aegean Sea. And uh, she meets Paul there, and she's converted. So she's the first convert, maybe, of Thyatira. So that's what, those are the names we know. Let's look at the identification. Uh, that's the background. Let's go to uh, B, Christ's identification. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, Son of God's a tricky, it's not a tricky phrase, but I think it, it is for us a little bit. For one, it is interesting, Domitian was being called at this time the Son of Zeus, the Son of God. That's how he was being spoken of. So I think again here, there's some, some challenge. Who has the real sword, the governor in Pergamum, or me? Who's the true son of God? Domitian, the emperor, or me? Now, the term son of God here has some biblical roots, some Old Testament roots. When we think son of God, we think Jesus is God, the, the second member of the Trinity. So when, uh, when Peter is asked in, uh, in Matthew 16, uh, uh, who do you say that I am? Remember, he said, who do people say that I am? You're a prophet, you're Elijah, you're... Okay, fine. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, um, I think you're the Christ. And then he says, the son of the living God. Now, what was Peter saying there? Was he saying, you're the Christ. I think you're a God. I don't think so. I don't think Peter knew. I think it's going to take a while before they realize that the man who's been in their midst is actually Jehovah. But when he says you are the Christ, Christ means anointed. In Hebrew, in, in Greek, it's Christos, Christ. The Hebrew is Mashiach, Messiah. You're the king. You're the promised king, comma, the son of the living God. Son of God meant king. Now, Jesus is going to reveal that it means a lot more than that. I'm the son of God in a way that no king. I'm David's son and David's Lord. I'm a son in a way no one's been. I'm the only begotten son. But the term son of God to the Jews around first meant king. Because if, if we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God made his covenant with David, he said, your son David, Solomon, is going to be king and I'm going to make a house for him. And I will be his father. And he will be my son. And hence the kings became known as the son of God. Let me just read you a quote here from, uh, from Psalm 2. Great psalm. But this is, this is starting in verse 6 of Psalm 2. They, they would sing, the, the, the Israelites would sing this psalm whenever a new king was coronated. When a new king was crowned, this would be the, the uh, song we sing. And, and uh, in, in my church, we actually sing psalms. Uh, we sing hymns too, but we actually sing psalms. And I love Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is just a great psalm to sing. It just starts out with God laughing at all these who are plotting against him. It's, it's wonderful. It's trash talk. It's, it's good stuff. But we get to the end, and he says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree of the Lord. Now the king is speaking. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now he speaks to the kings of the earth. 
And you've got to understand, Psalm 2 is just all through the book of Revelation. So here's the word to the kings of the earth. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all who put their trust in Him. Here Jesus reveals Himself to the church of Thyatira as the Son of God. I am the King. And in chapter 1, He revealed Himself. I am the King of kings. I have authority over all the kings of the earth. I am king over Domitian. I am the true son of God. Then he's the one with blazing eyes. We talked about that. This perceiving, all perceiving knowledge with the intent to purge. Again, still on Christ's identification. He has the blazing eyes with intent to purge. And then thirdly, in his identification, he reveals himself as the one with feet of bronze. Again, these are all coming from the first chapter. Feet that have been through the fire and are ready for war. Right, they've been through the fire, and now there's nothing can harm them. He's ready for war. All right, so that's Christ's identification. C, his affirmation, as he does to all these churches. Now he turns and grants them an affirmation. Verse 19, I know your deeds. Right? I have the eyes of fire. Nothing, nothing is hidden in darkness. I know, Thyatira, I know your deeds. And in this case, it's good. Right? I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. This church is great. Right? They're doers. Love, faith, service, perseverance. They have a James 2 kind of faith. A living faith. Not just, I say I have faith. I show you my faith by my deeds. That's living faith. And these guys have it. And not only that, but their latter works are better than their first. So in some sense, they're the opposite of Ephesus. Remember Ephesus? Hey, you've forgotten your first love. Like back then, you loved theology and you loved people. But now you've, you've forsaken your first love. You've got to get back to loving people. But this church, they seem to be the opposite. No, they're getting better. They're, they're maturing. They're growing. They're, they're doers and they're, they're maturing as they go. Then verse 20, chastisement. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and to eating the food sacrificed to idols. So here we go. Just like the Balaam sect, now apparently there was probably a woman, right? Probably her name was not Jezebel. But again, we're linking into an Old Testament image here. There's probably a woman claiming to be a prophetess who is telling them, hey, it's okay to do these things. The Lord understands. We know that there were people called Gnostics who went around to these churches and said, look, look, God cares about one thing. He cares about your soul. And what you do with your body doesn't really matter. And, and you think, oh, come on. Who could believe? Well, it, it, that spread like wildfire. And why wouldn't it? You think, God doesn't care what I do with my body? Just what I do with my soul? Okay, great. Well, apparently she's misleading many into believing that. And here they are, again, probably eating the food sacrificed to idols in their guilds. Your jobs probably depended on this. And so you could see very easily the temptation to be snookered into this, to say, well, if the Lord doesn't mind, and, and not only that, I'm just doing it with my body, but my soul is devoted to him. I mean, people did this. People thought this at the time of the Roman persecutions. They said, all right, I'll bow the knee to Caesar, and I'll, I'll, I'll offer up incense to him. But with my heart, I'm going to be offering it up to the Lord. 
even though Caesar looks like I'm offering it. I mean, it just, that's the kind of stuff you do. You try to justify. Right? You, you justify these things, your sin. And the Lord pulls back the veil. And he says, no, 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 it's sin. So Jezebel is, is going around with this, probably saying, hey, it's no big deal. But the Lord is saying, no, it is a big deal. I, I think here again, we've got to examine our own hearts, our own lives. And just ask, where are the idols? John Calvin said it beautifully, right? He said, we are all by nature idol factories. You're an idol factory. You by nature just make idols. You're, you're good at that. I'm good at that. And so we've got to ask, where are these idols? If the Lord could just pop into my, my life and pull back the veil and say, here, here's, here's the idol. And if you want to know where it is, look at what you sacrifice for. Look at what you're sacrificing for. And, and you, you know, the things that really just, that really move you, get you really angry. My wife is here, and so, you know, I just, I don't even want to talk about this because she's probably listing off my idols. She's going, oh, yeah, I know what yours are. But, um, but we all, we have to examine. We have to examine our hearts, right? We need this same veil to be pulled back on us. So the chastisement. You've tolerated this Jezebel. So again, kind of the opposite of Ephesus. Ephesus had their theology right. They, they did not tolerate wickedness. These guys, they have the works. They love people, but they are tolerating wickedness. They love people so much they don't want to say, hey, Jezebel, come on. You got to stop that. That's tough. It's tough to say that to people. And so they haven't done it and they've left the door open for this kind of idolatry. So the Lord says to them in verse 21, I've given her time to repent. Again, the Lord does not take sexual immorality and idolatry lightly. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Probably not her literal children, but probably the children of her teaching. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and that I repay each of you according to your deeds. So the Lord does not take this lightly. I've given time to repent, but she has not. The Bible tells us that the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. But his, his, his loving kind, his, his, his uh, being slow to anger does not last forever. And you ever read the Old Testament and just think, man, how many times the prophets came to Israel and said, repent, 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 and they did not, and they did not, and they did not. And you say, my goodness, how can the Lord put up with this? And he did, but then finally he acted. And so also here, he's going to act. I've given them time to repent and they didn't. And now I'm going to come and I'm going to kill her and I'm going to kill all who follow her. The motivation... This is uh, E. The motivation here, this is so that all will know that I am he who searches hearts and repays people according to their deeds. The, the image here is that of the plagues. Do you remember in the plagues in Egypt? When the Lord would bring these plagues against Pharaoh and against Egypt, and then after each plague, he'd say, so that you might know that I alone am God. Right? The Lord makes public testimony here. He will not let his name be trampled on and be disgraced. He'll tolerate it for some time, but then the time will come and that will be it. Their sins will be punished. The exhortation, letter F, hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the truth. Verse 26, the promise, as he gives to all these churches. And again, linking it back to Psalm 2. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, who perseveres, 
I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. And I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the promise to this church is that I will share with them, I will share with you, Jesus says, all my authority. My inheritance, I will share it with you. And we'll see that later to the Laodiceans. You will sit on thrones with me. All right, one more, and then we'll take a break. Sardis, the fifth church. There's two churches in, uh, in these seven letters that received no negative, Smyrna and Philadelphia, and one church that received no positive, no commendation, and that is Sardis, this fifth uh, church. Sardis was a fortress city. It was set high on a hill with three sheer cliffs. So three sides around the city were sheer cliffs. And then one side, you could approach it on a gradual incline. They were twice defeated, this city, by King Cyrus of Persia and then King Seleucus of the Greeks. And both times they were defeated, they were defeated by literally mountain climbers scaling a sheer cliff up, going over the city and unlocking the gates. This city was known for such overconfidence. Two times that happened. That they became so comfortable with this natural protection that they had, that they let their guards down. And two times the city was defeated and destroyed because they let their guard down. And you'll see that applies when the Lord speaks to this church here, to this fortress city. B, Christ's identification to the church of Sardis. I am the one who holds the seven, star, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We already said the seven spirits of the Holy Spirit and the seven stars of the seven churches. I am the one who has all authority and control over the churches. C, his analysis of the church. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. Whoops, turn. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in my sight. This is a really scary church. This is the letter you don't want to get. You don't want to look at this church and go, man, this one describes me. Because he says, look, like the Pharisees, you're whitewashed tombs. You look really good on the outside. You look like you're alive. You have a reputation. Everybody talks about Sardis. They say, man, have you seen that church? Man, they are booming. They're growing. They're alive. Man, they're just related to their community. People like them. They're doing well. They've got praise and worship. Have you been in their praise and worship? It's awesome. They have all the outward signs, but Jesus pulls back the veil again. I know you have a reputation that you are alive, but in fact, you are dead, or apparently almost dead. Just about dead. Almost dead. Yep, yeah. That's from, uh, that's, yeah, well, let me not get into it. I know your reputation. You are alive, but no, you are really dead. I know my church. I know your deeds. I know your reputation, but I also know the reality. Now, we don't know what it is about this church. We're not told about any compromise. You know, they caved against the threat of the beasts. We don't hear about Balaam. We don't hear about Jezebel. It just seems like there's nothing. They're not making any waves within their town, man. They're just getting along. They're not so Christian that the beast feels threatened by them. They're not caving to gross immorality. They're just spiritually dead. They're there, but nothing going on. Their works, the Lord says, are hollow. They're whitewashed tombs. 
So the exhortation, letter D, the exhortation that is given to them in verse 2. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Wake up. Be alert. Be on guard. Gird yourselves up. Because he's going to say, because I'm going to come. And the church at, at uh, this church of Sardis knew something about being asleep at the gates. As I told you, they were conquered twice that way. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete. Remember, therefore, what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I come to you. So here, they're called to wake up, gird themselves up, strengthen themselves. Remember the first things. Go back to the basics. Go back to the basics, Sardis. Remember the gospel. It's the only thing that can make you alive. Hold fast to it. Obey it. It's life-giving. It's risk-inducing. It's risk-inspiring. You really believe the gospel, you'll make waves within your community. You'll get the notice of the beasts if you really affirm the gospel. So go back to the fundamentals and repent. Then he gives them the warning. If not, I will come as a thief and you don't know when I will come. Just like the army scaled the walls and caught you snoozing, so I myself will come. And if you're snoozing, it will not be good. Then he gives him an affirmation. Sorry, we're on Sardis. Then he gives him an affirmation. Letter E. But, he says, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So the affirmation is, hey, Sardis, there is a little sign of life. There are a few within you who have not soiled their garments. They're not pure because they're somehow holy, but they have faith, right? They have genuine faith. And they will walk with me because they are worthy. But the worthiness, as we know, we just know from the whole Bible, the worthiness is not in and of themselves. It's because of Christ. Right? They trust Christ. They've been washed, we'll read later in the book, in the blood of Christ. And then finally, to Sardis, the promise. The promise to them, he who overcomes, verse 5, will be like them, dressed in white. And I will never blot his name out from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I will give him white robes, pure, glorified, sanctified, and he will be secure in the Lamb's book of life. And I will acknowledge him one day before my Father. All right, actually, we're cooking along. I'm going to, do, I'm going to hit Philadelphia so we can do Laodicea and then jump into Revelation 4 right after coffee. All right? Philadelphia. To the church at Philadelphia. The background, again, this is a little tiny, insignificant church. It was destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD. And it was leveled. Because it was kind of a tiny city, it didn't have the money to rebuild, so it took a loan from Rome. The Roman emperor gave a loan to rebuild the city, and in gratitude for that loan, they renamed the city. It was still called Philadelphia, but its nickname became Neo-Caesarea. The, the news, it, was, it was leveled in an earthquake in 17 AD. And they gave it the name Neo-Caesarea, New Caesar City. And again, that, the idea of the new name... Uh, will come into play here for this church. So their background, strong Jewish contingency here too in, uh, in Philadelphia, just like Smyrna. I don't know if any of you had the chance, by the way, to, to read through that thing on Polycarp, but 
I mentioned that these, the, the Jewish contingents that were accusing the Christians, remember? And saying, hey, they're not us. They're not us. So take them, kill them, make them sacrifice. Did you see, in, if you read that, right, when the, they're in the theater and, and they finally say, all right, Polycarp, um, we're going to burn you. We're going to burn you alive. It says, and Eusebius, when he writes that, he says, then the people all ran out to get the wood. So apparently they didn't have the wood for the fire. So the people all ran out to get the wood and it said, and most, most, uh, with the most energy, it was the Jews who went to get the wood. Right? The Jews in that city in Smyrna were, were accusing. Remember the synagogue of Satan, right? the accuser. And the Jews were doing that. And apparently there was a group like that here in Philadelphia that's giving them trouble. Uh, so Christ's identification to this city. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. He's the holy and true one. That is, he's God Almighty. Right? He, he's God Almighty, reliable and trustworthy. He's the one who holds, John reveals him as, the keys of David. What he opens, no one shuts. Right? These keys that he has are keys that come with authority. When he opens something, it's open. And when he shuts it, it's shut. Whatever I bind is bound. Whatever I loose is loose. These are the keys that Jesus speaks of when he talks to Peter in Matthew 16. I have the authority. What I shut stays shut. And what I open stays open. And what he's going to tell them is I've opened a door for you. Right? I've placed before you. This is verse 8. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. We'll come back to that in a second. C, his affirmation. I know your deeds. He says to them, I know your deeds. First, I know your stature. You are weak, small, insignificant. This little church, I, I, I pastor a very tiny church. So I remember when we were preaching through Revelation, I just honed in on this one for my church because we have a little tiny church. And, uh, but I love Philadelphia because I, he says, I know that you are weak. I know that you're tiny, but that's just the kind of people, that's just the kind of church the Lord works with. Remember 1 Corinthians 1? God has not chosen the strong, but he's chosen the weak. He's chosen the foolish things. The, the reality is we're all foolish. We're all weak. It's not just my little church or you or me. If you feel weak and insignificant, then man, let this church encourage you because the Lord says, man, I know, I know that you're small. In the world's eyes, you're insignificant, but you are exactly the kind of person I choose. You are exactly what I'm looking for. This is exactly who the Lord uses to do his mighty works. Just read through the Bible and just pick out every time the Lord chooses the insignificant one, the, the youngest of the brothers, right? The tax collector, not the Pharisee. You know, just look at how many times he does this throughout the scriptures. It's Moses who can't speak that he sends back to, uh, to Egypt. It's Joseph, the least of all the brothers. It's Paul who says, he's chosen me, the least of all the saints. I'm the chief of all sinners, and yet he's chosen me. The Lord works through the insignificant in the world's eyes. And so if sometimes you feel insignificant, you look particularly at the world around you, and it's, the problems are so big, and you're not. Let this letter encourage you. The Lord says, yes, I, I know that about you, but that's exactly what I'm looking for. Right? He says, um, I will make those, or I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. 
yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. So this little church is faithful and true. And then he makes to them a whole host of promises. So letter D, Jesus promises. This church gets more promises than anybody else. First, in verse 8, they get an open door, access into God's presence. And it's interesting that in chapter 4, the vision that we'll look at right after coffee, he says, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open. So the immediate context that we have here of an open door is the door that opens up to the throne room of God and to the church at Philadelphia, he says, I have opened a door for you and no one can shut it, right? You have access into my father's presence. The second promise that he gives them is vindication before his enemies, before their enemies. Uh, Verse nine, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And this is taken from Isaiah 45 and from Isaiah 48, the idea that your enemies will come and they will fall at your feet and they will then know that you are my people and that I am your God. And there's even a little bit more in there. There's a little hint in the Isaiah passages that they'll actually be converted. That it's not just that they'll fall down before you, but they'll fall down and they'll be converted. I just think of Joseph's dream. Because this seems, if you're in Philadelphia right now, in this church of Philadelphia, and you're saying, wait, these enemies that are just all around me, they're going to come and they're going to fall at our feet. And they're gonna, we're going to be vindicated before them. They seem to have all the power. We're insignificant. And I just think of Joseph's dream. Remember he gets that dream when he's out there in the field and he's cutting and he puts the sheaves. And, and in, in his dream, they're all standing and all the brothers and all their sheaves bow before Joseph. And he's just like, he doesn't know what to do with this. So he tells his brothers, which was not a good idea. And then he tells his dad and his dad is even like, well, what are you talking about? And Joseph's like, ah, what, how, how could this even happen? That seems bizarre that my brothers, my older brothers, they're the ones with all the, they're going to bow before me. And then think about how absurd it must have seemed when he reflected back on it, right? When they throw him in the well. He's like, oh yeah, this is going, this is going great. Right? This is, I can see how this is all being fulfilled. And then when they sell him into slavery and he's in Egypt. And then he's at least with Potiphar, but then he gets lied about and he's thrown into prison. I mean, that dream must come back to him all the time. And he must just be thinking... That was bizarre. And that's why when finally he meets his brothers and they bow before him, Joseph just, just, he just can't control himself. Just tears coming out. He sees it all coming because it seems so bizarre and unrealistic in the moment. And I'm sure to these folks in Philadelphia, it must have just seemed so bizarre. How could that be? But he's saying it will be. They They will fall before your feet. And then the third promise in verse 10, preservation. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, right? Because that's the whole call through the book of Revelation. Endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. He says, look, you've been faithful and therefore I'm going to keep you. I'm going to preserve you from the hour of trial that's coming. Now, what does he mean I'm going to preserve you from the hour of trial? Does that mean they won't have to go through it? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I think what he means is I will keep you through it. I'm, gonna, I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you go. And I think particularly of the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8. The Lord never promises his people, he never promises you or me or the church of Philadelphia that you will be spared from persecution or affliction or trouble or hardship. The Bible does not do it. Please, I don't know all the different churches you come from, but be very, very careful about the prosperity gospel. 
This idea that if you're really faithful to the Lord, then bad things will not happen to you. That is not biblical. Right? And not only that, it's unbelievably painful and hurtful to faithful brothers and sisters who are suffering. The Bible promises, if you are faithful, you will suffer, but I will keep you. Just hear Paul's words from Romans chapter 8. Who will separate us? You know this passage. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You think any of those can separate you from the love of God in Christ? And you know Paul's going to say, no way. Why? Because you'll never experience them? Don't worry about those things, guys. I'll never let those come and afflict you. No, listen to what Paul says. No, as it is written, for your sakes, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul says, we're getting all those things. Peril, nakedness, famine, sword. Man, Christians are like sheep going to the slaughter. But then his next words, yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. It's not by escaping these things we're more than conquerors. But he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And so he says to his church here, I will preserve you in that hour of trial that's coming upon the earth. Don't believe it when they say Christians escape this stuff. We do not. We do not. And boy, the book of Revelation will make that painfully clear. Two other promises. Verse 12, I will give you strength. He, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which is coming down of heaven, out of heaven from my God. I will write on him my new name. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give you strength. I'll make you a pillar in my temple. Forget the synagogue of Satan. They don't want any part of you, but I'm going to make you a pillar in my temple and I'm going to give you a new name, a Trinitarian name, the name of my God and the name of the city and my own name. And then finally, he gives him one last charge. One last charge in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And here's the word to you. Don't let anyone steal your crown. Now, how could their crown be stolen? Well, the two enemies. By trial, I cave. I throw my crown away. I don't want the crown. I don't want to be hurt by the beast. That's one way to lose your crown. Or the other way is to have it taken away by seduction, right? By the the harlot, by the allure of our culture, by the the temptations of all the, the things that surround us. Don't let that happen. How? Hold fast to Christ. How can you and I resist the beast and resist the harlot at the same time? And the answer is by holding fast to Christ. We must find in Christ a greater joy. We must find in Christ something that's better tasting than all the tastes of the sinful allures of the world. If we just try to willpower and say, I'm not going to give in to all these temptations. Wow, they're, no, I'm not going to give in to these. Well, I would be not, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, if that's the way we handle temptation, you're done. You're cooked. The only way to resist the allure of the temptation is to find something more delightful. Right? You're a little kid. You, you, love, you love stuff. You love sugar cereal. And maybe you still love sugar cereal. I don't know. 
It just if you, if you could, you know, when I was a kid, mom never let us have Lucky Charms. You know, I, I, as, when I was a little kid, I just wanted Lucky Charms so bad. And mom wouldn't buy it until we got older. The city kids all came and lived with us. Mom started buying Lucky Charms when I was in high school. And still, I ate it like a crazy. But I wanted Lucky Charms. And if you would have told me, here's a, here's a thousand, I would have just gone and bought boxes of Lucky I would just bought this big store, a tractor trailer of Lucky Charms. That would have been a great way to spend my money when I was about six. Because my mom wouldn't get us lucky. I, mean, I don't mean to throw you under the bus, mom. But, um, but you know, that, that, would, that would have been a way. But then you grow up. Then you grow up and you find something that tastes a lot better than Lucky Charms, right? You, you discover filet mignon. You discover lobster. You discover bacon cheeseburgers, all right? <laughs> Mint chocolate chip. Well, now I'm just going my whole list. But you find stuff that tastes better. All of a sudden, you don't have the taste for Lucky Charms. And, and if we try to just say no to these things, or if we try to resist all the intimidation of the beast just by willpower, I'm not, I'm not going to cave. You've got to find something that's so precious that I don't care what your intimidation is to me. It doesn't affect me because this is just so awesome. Christ is so precious to me that none of these temptations move me. They just don't move. What is that? I'm supposed to look at that when I have this? The problem is we don't cultivate this. We just say, let's fight against that. Let's fight against the temptation. But we need to cultivate this. Hold fast. He says, hold fast to Jesus Christ. Find him so precious that the beast, in light of that, doesn't look so scary. That's what Polycarp had, those who were here last week. That's what makes a Polycarp. Because he just looks at the fire. Remember what he said? You, you threaten me with this fire? You have no idea about the fire that burns forever. You don't know what you're... You're asking me to deny my Lord? He's been faithful to me for 86 years. And I'm supposed to be scared of you? I'm supposed to throw it all away because you're threatening me with death? That comes by holding fast to Jesus Christ and finding him precious. Of all the letters, I think uh, maybe this is the one people know because of the the strong language the Lord uses about the church of Laodicea. This is the last, the seventh of the churches, and we've seen all different types. And it just, it opens our eyes to the fact that if you think you've got one problem licked within the Christian faith, you know, again, have your guard up because there's just all these different angles of weakness that we need to repent of. And the Christian life, as we said, is one of overcoming. It's one of repenting. And, and asking the Lord to reveal these things to us. So here we come finally to the last of the seven churches, the church of Laodicea. Laodicea is bringing us all the way. We've kind of looped all the way around. Now we're down south, south of Ephesus, where we started. Laodicea was a very prosperous city. They also were destroyed by an earthquake. They were destroyed in 60 AD, but they had the resources to rebuild with no... They didn't borrow a cent. They had it within themselves to rebuild. Uh, they had that kind of prosperity. They were known for three things, and you'll see them come up in this, uh, in this letter. They were known for three primary uh, renowned contributions that they made or characteristics. First was their banking industry. Uh, they, they were bankers, and uh, hence a lot of the wealth that poured into the city. Also, their, their uh, textile industry, like, um, like Thyatira, they were particularly known for their black wool. I guess they made they they had these they 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 produced uh, this black wool, and also uh, their medical school, and you'll see it because it, it uniquely comes up. And here's where the Lord, who just knows His churches, right? He knows the people. He knows you. He knows exactly as we've said what you need and how to relate to you. But you'll see this uh, this come up. 
that one of the great contributions, the medical contributions and, and developments that they made in Laodicea was an eye salve that, um, that they were supposedly known for all over uh, uh, Asia Minor, uh, this medical development they did, and you'll see that come up here. Laodicea had one significant problem was their water supply. They did not have a reliable water supply. So they actually, and this left them very exposed to enemies, they, they had water piped in from two neighboring cities, the city of Hierapolis and the city of Colossae, where, where we get the book of Colossians from. They, these cities were on either side, and then they piped water into uh, Laodicea, which made them very susceptible or easy to be attacked, because you just attack that water supply, you shut the city down. And this was something they always had to battle against. But that water supply is going to be significant uh, for this letter and for a misunderstanding, I think, um, that at least I had for many years regarding the uh, reprimand to this church. So let's, let's jump in. That's the background of, uh, of this city. Christ identifies himself to them as he does to the others. Here to the church of Laodicea, these are the words of the Amen. Amen means true, right? Truly. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So he, the one revealing himself here is the Amen, right? So when he assesses you, Laodicea, you're getting a true assessment. <laughs> this is the one who knows what he's talking about. He is the great Amen, and he's the ruler of all creation. Things are ramping up now. Then he makes this assessment. Uh, this is uh, C. I have analysis or assessment of uh, Laodicea. C, the analysis. And this is what people are familiar with. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So uh, he's, he's, <laughs> he's giving some body blows there. I mean, he really comes after uh, this church. So first, the assessment is you're lukewarm. Right? This, is the, this is the famous lukewarm church. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. I, I wish you were hot or cold. And um, I'll just tell you personally how I read this, and, I, and maybe you do too, and for years just read this as, you know, you're, you're neither hot nor cold, and we read hot nor cold to mean you're neither hot on fire for me or just cold, just completely turned off to me. You're kind of just lukewarm. Now, they are lukewarm, but it's the hot and the cold thing that bothered me because I always wondered, what do you mean the Lord say, I wish you were cold? I wish you were either hot or cold. What do you mean, the Lord, when does the Lord wish you be cold to him? Until you study the background of the city and you realize these two water supplies that they did get in. I mean, this, this hit home. It's just one of those things you got to think through the city and all of a sudden you say, oh, interesting. Because the two water supplies that piped into them, one was Hierapolis and they had hot water springs. Right? They were known for their medicinal baths, these, these hot baths uh, that uh, people would come and use for whatever kind of therapy or so forth. That was in Hierapolis, and that water was piped down to, to uh, Laodicea. Of course, by the time it got down to Laodicea, it was no longer hot, right? It was tepid. And Colossae got water that flowed from the mountains. Their water was ice cold. But by the time it made its way down to, to uh, Laodicea, it too was not ice cold. It was kind of tepid. And so I think what's happening is the Lord is using this as a metaphor for their spiritual state, 
So he says, I wish that you were one or the other. You know, I wish that you were cold, that is, refreshing, that you brought something to your culture, that you were refreshing to the community, that you brought life, the life of the gospel to your community. You're not that. Nor are you like the hot springs of Hierapolis, that medicinal relief that they bring. You're neither hot nor cold. Now, maybe we're reading into that. I don't know. But it, to me, it makes more sense than saying, I wish you were cold uh, to me. I just never, that never uh, made sense to me. Instead, Laodicea is neither. They're just tepid. They're tepid believers in Christ. And the Lord says, then, because you're like that, who wants to drink water like that? I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Really? Strong language. That's the word. I will vomit you out of my mouth. The problem with Laodicea is they've got this false opinion of themselves. Verse 17, you say I am rich. Right, they are. They're very wealthy, this city. Earthquake, boom, we rebuild it. We've got a banking industry. We're all doing fine, very prosperous. Right? In this way, we, we gotta, we've got to be on guard here. You say I am rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. There's always the danger with prosperity and that we, particularly in our culture, who by the world's standards, of course, are unbelievably wealthy, by all of us in here, by the world's standards, are like in the top one. We are the one percenters, okay? We are the one percenters of the world. And if we blow it out to world history, I mean, we're unbelievably prosperous. But the danger is always, in your prosperity, you begin to think, even though you wouldn't say it, you begin to think, I, I don't need anything. I'm doing just fine here. And the way you know that is your prayer life begins to really stink. Because you're just not on your knees crying out to the Lord because you pray. You pray when all of a sudden the bad thing happens because that, that then pulls back the veil and exposes it. Next thing you know, you're dropped on your knees before, oh God, please, I need you. I, I can't, there's nothing I can do here. Okay. But that's the danger with prosperity is it leads to this kind of mentality, maybe spoken, maybe not. You, you say you're rich. I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing, but you do not realize. So here comes the amen now. The amen, who's the faithful witness, he's going to give you the true testimony of who you really are and who are you. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You can almost hear John Newton in Amazing Grace tapping into some of these, right? Saying, I was blind, but now I see, you know. Or, or Augustus Top Lady in Rock of Ages. If you don't sing hymns, you don't know any of these. But, but uh, you know, in Rock of Ages, you know, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Right, just a wonderful hymn. And Augustus Top Lady just saying, yes, you know, as we sing that together as a congregation, right, we just know that's we're confessing what Laodicea refused to acknowledge. They allowed the outward appearance to, uh, to shape them. They think they're rich, but they're really pretty pathetic. Then to them comes the charge. I counsel you, verse 18. So this is the charge, letter D. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich. You, you think you're rich because you've got shekels? You think you're rich because you've got an IRA? You think you're rich because you've got stock in this company or that? You think that's what made you? No, no, no. Listen, come to me and buy gold refined in a fire so that you can be rich. Now, how can you buy that kind of gold? Isaiah 55, one of my favorite passages. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Not about gold, but about food. He says, come. 
Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money or without price. Come, delight your souls in fatness, you who have no money. The gold that he offers you here, the gold refined in fire, absolutely free. Absolutely free. True wealth, true riches are yours in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 1, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But does that seem like wealth to you? Or is it dollars and stocks? Not that those are bad. Again, those aren't bad. But, but where's your wealth? Is that wealth to you? Or is that a blessing from God that I need to steward? But the riches that I have are in Christ. Don't be fooled, Laodicea. You're not rich. You're pathetic. You're poor. But I counsel you. I'm begging you. Come to me. Buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich. And you think you're finely dressed? No, no, no. Come to me and buy white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Naked, come to thee for dress, Augustus' top lady says. I will give you cover for your nakedness, for your shame. Don't try to build up this pretty picture of yourself. Come to me, I'll give you a new identity. I'll give you white robes to wear, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Clothe yourselves in Christ, Paul says in, in uh, Romans thirteen fourteen. Clothe yourselves in Christ. And I will give you salve. Now he's hitting home. So you see, he got the, I'll give you true wealth. It's not your banking that gives you wealth. I'll give you true clothing. It's not your textiles that you will be clothed with. And I will give you true salve. He's getting personal. I will give you salve to put on your eyes so that you can see because you're blind. I will give you true sight. Remember that story in John 9? That really bizarre story. Jesus comes along the pool of Siloam. And there's a blind man there. He's been there for years. And Jesus comes up to this man. And, and he could just go, hey, buddy, you're healed. Pfft, done. But instead, in this case, in John 9, he comes and he reaches down into the dirt. You remember this one? He reaches down in the dirt and he gets some clay. And then he spits in it. And he makes a paste. The good thing the guy was blind because he didn't know what was... <laughs> so all of a sudden there's this cool substance on my eyes. But, but the Lord, he reaches down into the dirt and he makes it into a paste and puts it on his eyes. And then he says, now, hey, go bathe in the pool. The guy goes into the pool and he comes up and he can see. And what's great about that story, go read it, because it's an amazing contrast in that story between the blind man who now sees and the people who can see who are really blind because the rest of that passage is the Pharisees grilling this guy over who did this to you? Who? You were the man blind. Who, who did this to you? I don't know. He just came up. He touched me. He put something cool on my, my eyes. And then, and then I, I could see, well, but who was it? How did this happen? I don't know. And they, they get his parents in here. They bring the poor guy's parents. They find these parents. They drag them in there. They, who did this to you? And, and, and they're grilling the guy. We don't know. Yes, he was born blind. We don't know how this happened. And by the end of the thing, the, 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 the blind man starts to get clearer and clearer vision. He's thinking back about who this guy is that healed him. And it's getting clearer and clearer and clearer. And the Pharisees are becoming more and more and more blind throughout the whole story. It's an amazing thing, right? They're the ones who supposedly can see. They're the ones who have all the theological knowledge. Yet they're spiritually blind. But this poor guy who was blind 
begins to see so clearly. It's a beautiful passage. And here, the, the Laodiceans say, no, 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 you're not rich, and you're not finely dressed, and you really can't see. Come to me, and I'll grant you all these things. And so they're told then to repent. Come to me, I'll give you all these things. And then uh, E, Jesus' reminder, because those are some pretty hard words, but then he gives him this beautiful reminder in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. I find this just, again, tenderness, whatever the word is. I'm a guy, so it feels weird to say tenderness. But, but um, he, just rips, he just rips Laodicea. You know, you're, just, you're, you're wretched, you're poor. Imagine the Lord Jesus telling you this. You think you're something? You're wretched, poor, miserable, blind, naked. And then he goes, but hey, I only tell you this because I love you. It's just, again, it's just the kindness of the Lord. Just a reminder, because you hear that and you just, oh, just feel horrible about yourself. And then the Lord says, I'm just telling you this. I discipline those I love. So when you hear this, know I love you. Better I tell you this than that I not tell you this and let you go on believing that you're rich and you're finely dressed and you can see so clearly. I tell you this because I love you. Hebrews chapter 12. He disciplines those whom he loves. And if he doesn't discipline you, then you're not a child. And so sometimes it's the fine, little gentle discipline that we give you know, to our kids. No, 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 don't. Okay, that's all it takes. And then sometimes it takes what my father had to give me. And it was not, uh, it, was, it was coach, right? You guys know coach, right? And sometimes, and sometimes it takes that. But, but here's what we know. The one who does this is the amen. He's the faithful witness. When he does it, it, it's out of love and it's perfect and it's pure and it is motivated purely by love, not by frustration. Like I discipline my, my kids sometimes. I just get ticked off, right? And then my discipline is not love. It's just anger, right? Well, all right, don't turn... <laughs> getting personal here. So it's a reminder. This is love. And then finally, the promise. Two beautiful things here. And, and really, the last one, I think, is just it's so amazing. But, but first, first, I'm coming soon. Oh, no, excuse me. Um, those whom I love, I rebuke. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, now, Again, here's another one you read a little bit wrong, right? We read this as Jesus is standing outside the house and he says, can I come in? I'd like to live with you and I'd like to abide there with you and I'd like to eat with you. But that, that's not quite what's going on, though it's something. But let me just read a quick passage here from Luke 12 and you'll see the, the similarities. This is Jesus speaking. He says this and feel a little bit of urgency in this now. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are the servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Or surely I say to you, he will gird himself and have them sit down and eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and so find them, Blessed are those servants. The image here is not just he's standing outside your door and he would like some shelter and he'd love to come into your house and be with you, though though it is that. But it's the idea of the Lord coming back to his house. He's coming back to his house, having had this great celebration, and he comes back to the house, and here's the question. You're the servants inside the house. Now, when I knock at the door, are you ready? 
Because these servants in Luke 12 are ready. Man, they hear that? Boom, I've been waiting for him. Bang, open the door. And he comes in. And what's fascinating is what does he do when he comes in? Says, all right, where's the meal you made for me? I'm ready. No. In Luke 12, he says, and I will come in. And then I will serve them. The the master comes back to the house to the servants who said, that you better be ready. That meal better be prepared. And then he knocks. Boom, they're ready. Blessed are those servants because they heard the knock and boom, they opened it up. And I will come in and sup with them. But the way he sups with them, he says, servants, sit. You sit. And then the master goes and gets the food and comes out and serves them. It's an incredible image. Again, just an amazing image. This is the king who just told these people, you're wretched, blind, poor, naked. But when I knock, if you're ready, I will come in and I will eat with you. And I myself, the king of kings, will serve you. And then, I mean, to, to a church that got ripped so hard, they get these, and again, these are blessings to all the churches. But then listen to the last one. To him who overcomes, verse 21. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. I mean, to the Laodiceans. To him who overcomes, I will give to sit with me on my throne. I won't just give you some place out there. I'll give you some turf and I'll let you have... No, no, no. You will sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So whose throne is it? Jesus overcomes, he gets to sit on the... The father says, son, you sit here. Then we, wretched, blind, poor, naked, miserable sinners, overcome by his grace, and Jesus says, you sit here. You sit with me on my throne. You share my authority. This is what, remember, we're called the bride of Christ, and all this vision's moving toward the great wedding banquet. And what happens in a marriage? When two people are married, all that's mine becomes yours, and all that's yours becomes mine. And Jesus does not withhold one thing from his bride, even his throne. He shares with his bride. You overcome, I will serve you, and I will let you sit on my throne with me. Now, we've looked at seven churches, diverse churches, and it's a lot. There's a lot of more information than you can process than I can process. There's a lot of information we poured out there today. But I encourage you, my, the whole point of this course even is not so when you walk away, you go, wow, I never have to open Revelation up again. Man, I got that down. No, the, the point of this is so you go, wow, I'd like to go back in and check that out. Go back and read these churches. Pray through them. Say, Lord, show me which church I'm like. Right? Where do I need to repent? And then... Be encouraged because your Lord makes these blessings, not just to the, we're not sitting here observing what he's saying to these churches. He's saying it to you. It's the seven churches, right? That he gives these things to. So be encouraged by that. All right. I made it to chapter four. Uh, this is good for me. All right, let's, let's take some time and introduce chapter four now. Because now, now we're getting here, right? Now you, you said, all right, I knew we had to talk about the churches, but uh, kind of looking forward to when you get to chapter 6. Well, we're almost there. But now we get to the vision, all right? Now we're getting to the vision proper. So let's not, I'm not going to waste time. Let's jump in here. Let's go to the vision. So there on that thing I have, 
chapters 4 and 5, the heavenly vision. And then I, I thought we'd only get there, so that's all I have for you. But three things. The vision of God's throne and heavenly worship. The summons, the one seated on the throne, and then the worship around the throne. Probably the worship around the throne we'll get to next week. But we'll see. Maybe not. Let's start. First, the summons. Chapter 4. After this, I looked. And there before... You know what? I'm just going to read. I'm going to read just like we did with the first vision. Let's just see it. I'm going to read all chapter 4. Just see it. And take this in. It's awesome. Chapter 4 and 5, by the way. They go together, but we'll only read 4. Just listen now. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard uh, speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Just a wonderful vision and beautiful vision that John now gets. So let's start with verse 1, the summons. He's now given his letters to the churches. He's been told to do this. And now after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open. Now we've just heard to, to one of the churches, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to give you an open door, right? I'm the one who opens and no one locks. I lock, no one opens. But I've opened the door, and now John looks, and boom, there's a door standing open. He comes in the door and there's a throne and he's just been told, I'm going to let you sit on my throne. And so these images are just flooding in and we're going to see white robes. I'm going to see crowns, all these things that have just been promised. We're get, we glimpse into them in the heavenly throne room. After this, I looked and before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that is Jesus, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this, a couple things to note here. First, Jesus initiates this vision. Right, John doesn't come banging on the door. <laughs> Jesus says, hey, John, come here. I want to show you something. He ushers him in. And of course, this connects with the whole theme of the New Testament, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father but me. We don't just go barging into God's presence. 
But we are invited to enter boldly before his throne of grace because Jesus Christ is the one who ushers us in. On the one hand, he sees a door open, but in John's gospel, Jesus said, I'm the door. So I'm the way. So the door is open. Jesus himself is inviting and summoning and beckoning John to come up here and to see this. And how does John see it? He says, I was in the spirit. So again, Trinity, right? The the interwovenness of the Trinity of this text, it's just there. Jesus summons him to see the one seated on the throne, and he sees the one seated on the throne as he's in the spirit. So again, the Trinity is just woven into this text. So first, regarding the summons, Christ initiates it. He calls John to see this. And then secondly, regarding the summons, is this phrase. That's a loaded phrase, so I want to mention it to you. After this, I looked and there was a door standing open. I heard the voice like a trumpet say to me, come up here. And then this phrase, I will show you what must take place after this. Now that is, uh, that's a loaded phrase. I will show you what must take place after this. That is taken from Daniel, uh, oh, let's see, did I give what chapter? Daniel 2. Daniel 2, verse 45. Daniel has just seen this, or gotten the dream, right? Nebuchadnezzar has come to him with his dream about this great statue. And, and, um, Dan, you know, he calls Daniel. I can't interpret this. What's going on? What, what's supposed to, what is this all about? Daniel comes and he interprets the dream. It's these successive empires, right? You are the head, oh great Nebuchadnezzar. You're, you're the head of gold. And then we've talked about this before. Then, then you've got the, the body of silver, a lesser kingdom than you will come. And of course, that, that's the Persians. And then, and then you've got the, the, the waste of, of bronze, and that will be Alexander the Great. And then these legs of iron, right? We talked about that. And then this this rock comes into the picture and destroys the statue. And then the rock becomes a a tremendous mountain. And Daniel says, well, this is the rock is God's kingdom that will come and, and it will destroy all the kingdoms of the world. It will destroy all these rival kingdoms that this beast that tears the the saints into pieces. Remember that ribs are hanging out of the mouth of this. I mean, this beast just ravages the people of God. But this rock comes and destroys this, this great statue. And then the rock begins to grow and ends up to be this mighty mountain. And then Daniel says this, O Nebuchadnezzar, these are the things which must take place after this. And that phrase is the phrase that John is using here. And what's interesting is it's used four times in the book. And they're at very key places. So this phrase, let me show you the things which must take place after this, does two things for us. One, it's going to give us the basic structure of the book. Let me, let me explain. This, this, that phrase, these, the things which must take place after this, pops up four times in the book. Chapter 1, verse 1. The, the very introduction to the book, you get it. So the beginning of the book, the, the prologue. Then chapter 1, verse 19, the beginning as the letters are being introduced. So this phrase comes at the beginning of key parts of the book. The very beginning, the prologue, it comes at the beginning of the letters to the churches. Then here, chapter 4, verse 1, the beginning of now the vision proper. Okay, so now we're getting the big vision. 
And then it will come one more time at the very end of the book, chapter 22, verse 6, the beginning of the epilogue. So Revelation has a prologue and an epilogue. Then you got the letters, then you got the big vision. And this phrase, these are the things which must take place after this, start each of those four sections. So John is giving us a macro structure to the book. It's kind of zooming out and saying, here's a, a, a big structure. Prologue, letters, big vision, epilogue. So that's one thing it does. But the second thing this phrase does is tips us off. Right at the beginning, even in verse 1 of chapter 1, to the general theme of the book. Where is this book going? John links it back into the vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 2. You want to know what Revelation is about? It's about all the beastly powers get crushed and an eternal, unshakable kingdom of God will grow, though it looks like a little stone, that little stone will crush the kingdoms of this world and it will grow to be a mighty mountain. That, John is telling you in this phrase, that's what this book is about. That's the big zoomed out vision. And we get it in that little hidden phrase. John's linking us back into Daniel chapter 2. So it's going to give us a basic structure and it's going to tip us off to the theme of the book. Okay, so that's the summons. He's summoned up by this trumpet voice. Come up here and see this. And then he sees B on our outline, the one seated on the throne. John comes up. At once I was in the spirit and there was before me a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass. All right, so now John comes up into this vision of this throne room and let's think about the what he sees now as he just scans and reports to us what he sees first thing to note he does not see an image of God he never says and I saw what looked like no I saw a throne with someone seated on it and that that's it and there was jasper and carnelian, like he sees colors. I, I, saw, I saw brilliant, radiant colors, but no image. And we link back here to, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy 4, that's Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Israel is getting ready to enter the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 4, verse 14, the Lord says to, uh, Moses says to the Israelites, he's warning them, don't build or create any images of God. Don't do like your fathers did when they made the golden calf. And don't forget, the golden calf, here's another easily misunderstood thing. When they, came out of, when they came through the Red Sea, and then they come to Mount Sinai, and Moses is up on top of the mountain receiving the law, and Aaron and the guys are down below, and they were told, you are not allowed to come up this mountain. In fact, you are not allowed to touch the mountain. If you touch the mountain, you will die. If an ox touches the mountain, he must. You don't come near. God's presence is off limits. Well, they're down there just waiting around for Moses and there's thunders and lightnings like we hear here, rumblings up there. And then they say, hey, where's, what's going on with Moses? 
what's, what's with this guy Moses, they call him? Well, go read it. It's really weird. Like, what do you mean this guy Moses? I mean, Moses just led you out of here. You know, what's with this guy Moses? And what's he doing up there? And we can't see God and, and so forth. Let us make an image for ourselves. What do you say, Aaron? Take off the... All right, give me your goal. Let's see what happens. And as he tells Moses, I just threw it in the fire. Now came a calf. But they take the calf. Now, when the calf, the, gold, the famous golden calf is out there, what do they say about the golden calf? Aaron says, when they make the calf, what does he say? Hear, O Israel, is the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. They weren't saying, ah, you know what, forget Jehovah. Let's go worship a calf. No, what they're saying is, let's worship Jehovah in the image of a calf. Let's do like Egypt did. They have images of their gods. Let's make an image. We can't be up there with him. Let's, make an, let's bring him down to us. We'll make an image of him. That's the second commandment. No graven images. It's not, don't go worship idols. That's the first commandment. The second commandment is, don't make any images of God. In Deuteronomy 4, as they're coming into the land, Moses reminds him, guys, don't make any images. Don't forget at Horeb or at Sinai, you did not see an image of God. Therefore, don't try to replicate it. It's just in our nature to want to do that. I want to see. I want to see something in front of me. I'll worship him, but I'll do it looking here. Don't do that. And John gets this vision of glory, no image. Because there's only one image of God. I do this with my theology class. We won't do it now, but you can think about it. If I, clo- if I ask you to close your eyes and think about God, what do you see? If I said, just close your eyes and think about God, what do you see? Anybody, what, what, what are some things you think you see? What are you thinking? What is the number one thing on the list? If I ask people, clo- and my students can't say, if I say, close your eyes and think about what do you think is the number one thing people say they see when they close their eyes? I wish. I wish. Old man with a beard? That's up there. That's up there. What else? Old man with a beard? Yeah, bright light. Right? A bright light, overwhelming. Maybe that. What? Clouds. clouds. Okay. All right. Ancient of days sitting on a cloud. Now, I wish it was, I wish it was what you said, Andrea. And for all of us, you know, but it's just, it's, it doesn't come naturally to us. If, we, if I say, close your eyes and think of God, what should you see? Jesus. Jesus. Right? I mean, that, that's what we should see because that is the only image of God. We've talked about it here. Do you know what God looks like? He looks like Jesus. Jesus is the image, Paul says in Colossians 1, the image of the invisible God. So when he comes up, Jesus is the one who summons him up. But when he gets up there, he sees no image. We will tend to want to replicate it. Jesus is the only image of God. So we get an image. Well, we, get, we get this grand vision. No image on the throne, but a throne. And all we're told is it's glorious. Just these overwhelming, brilliant colors. Some debate about what these colors are. Carnelian, jasper. They use jasper to describe different stones. But regardless, these are precious stones, radiant in color, maybe yellow, reds, reflecting themselves. That's all he sees, this radiant glory. He sees, verse 3, God's covenantal faithfulness described in the sign of a rainbow. Again, just link back into the Old Testament. What was the rainbow? What's the rainbow all about? God's promise. I'm a promise-keeping God. And there, encircling, this is where it gets hard to envision, 
just is. Just, it's not a photograph. We talk, this is not a photograph of God's throne room. It's a vision. Go read Ezekiel 1 if you want over the week. Ezekiel gives you another vision of God's throne room. A little bit different, but with similarities. Neither of these are photographs of the throne room. When, when we get before God, it will not look identical to this. Okay? This is a vision. He's giving us symbolic understandings of what is it. What kind of God is seated on that throne? A God who's encircled by a rainbow. And what does the rainbow mean? The rainbow is a sign of his covenantal faithfulness. God is a promise-keeping God. And what kind of promises does the rainbow speak of? A new creation. This book is moving, chapter 22, to a new creation. And the rainbow, right at, this, right at the beginning, tips us off at the throne. Our God is a God who's a promise-keeping God, and the promise he makes is new creation on the other side of judgment. This book is about judgment, for sure. But on the other side of it, where we're going, is new creation. Count on it. The God that's on that throne is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. He's covenantally faithful. And there's another image of God's faithfulness in this vision. Not only the rainbow is an image of his faithful mercy and promise-keeping, but also look at, the, look at what's around the throne. In verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. Now, these 24 elders, again, commentators will debate over who they are. Why 24? Again, 12. 12 is a significant number in the book. 12 represents the perfection of God's people. Hence, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles and disciples, 12 walls on the New Jerusalem, 12 foundations on the New Jerusalem, 12 times 12 times 1,000, the 144,000. A lot of 12s in the book. 24 elders. In the Old Testament, the temple singers, there were 24 of them. Perhaps that's what these are. The temple singers around the throne. Maybe it's that. Some say they're representatives of heavenly representatives of the Old and New Testament saints. Twelve from the Old, twelve from the New. I don't know. But we can throw these things out. They're just things to think about. But what's interesting for us is, how are they described? What's going on with them? And so many of the things that were just promised to the churches, we see here. And I think this vision John gives to give confidence to us, the church militant, the church that's engaged, that needs to overcome, that the things that were promised, look, there they are. We get the vision of heaven, and there they are. God has given them to his people. You know, again, the very things he's promised, he's given. What, what are they? Surrounding the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on them were these 24 elders. God is happy to share the throne. Now, of course, we're told we'll sit on his throne. And they were dressed in white, just as, they were, just as the churches were told. I will give you new clothes, the Laodiceans were told. Pure white garments. And they have crowns of gold on their head, just like the other churches were told. Don't let them steal your crown. I will give you the crown of life. So we see God's covenantal faithfulness here. And then finally, we see his sovereignty. So we see his glorious nature in these colors. We see his covenantal faithfulness in the rainbow and in the giving of these gifts to these 24 elders. And then, most majestically, we see his sovereignty. It's awesome that when John is in the Spirit, he's summoned up. The first thing he sees is a throne. And for the churches that have to go through what this book is calling us to go through, and what we as Christians need to go through, whether it be temptation or trial, beast or harlot, to get the first initial glimpse that we get is of a throne, I think just sets the tone for the rest of the book. 
There is a throne, and there is one who's seated on it, and he is sovereign. He's sovereign, because it's going to look, as we go through this book, it's going to look like, is there anybody in control here? Some vicious stuff is happening in this book. And we don't need the book to tell us, just watch the news. You've got Christian brothers in Syria, uh, uh, Christian brothers and sisters in Syria, in Egypt, in North Korea, in China, in Nigeria, that are dying for the faith. And you just have to, you, you just say, Lord, are you with them? Are you, are you watching over them? These people are crying out to you and, and they're being trampled. And the book of Revelation says, expect that. But know at the outset, let the, thing, let the image that just hits you, besides the beautiful image of chapter 1, but as you see his throne room, let the first image that hits you be a throne. And one seated on it. He's sitting there. It's a tone setter for the rest of the book. And then what's before this throne? A sea of glass. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass. Now we'll hold that. I'll let you meditate on that. And we'll jump into that next week because I only have one minute. But I want to think through in the Bible the way the sea is represented. Throughout the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, the sea represents chaos. The sea usually represents evil. It's not that the ocean is evil, but it's a metaphor for evil. And the waves of the sea represent those who rise up and oppose the Lord and his anointed. Go read. Read the Psalms. I'll read you some next week when we have time. But if you want, just go think about the sea in the Old Testament. The chaos and the tumult that rages against the Lord and his anointed. But when John sees the throne... And though the book of Revelation, boy, it's going to look like tumultuous seas. In fact, in chapter 13, a beast is going to come up out of the sea. The sea is bad in the, in the visions. But when John sees the throne room of God, he gets to see things from God's perspective. There before him, the sea is glass. Think Jesus on the boat with the stormy sea, asleep. And the disciples, scared out of their wits that they're going to die, and they wake him up and they say, Master, don't you care that we're about to die? Don't you care? They're asking Jesus if he cares. It's is amazing. And Jesus says, this is the one who's going to come die for them. He said, don't you care about us? It's about ironic. And Jesus gets up, and when he calms that storm, it's not just, see how powerful I am? You know, this is just what an amazing act over nature. No, no, there's much more going on there. Now, now in their minds, he saved their lives, but there's much more going... Same thing when he walks on the sea. There's something else going on there. Jesus is the one who can stand and with a word say peace. And the sea becomes glass. There in heaven is a throne. And before the throne, a sea of glass. And so when it looks like the waves are raging as it will in this book and as it does in your own life. I don't know what you're going through in your life, but we all know from time to time it just feels like we're overcome by billows. When billows o'er me roll, the hymn writer says, it is nonetheless peace with my soul. Why? Because the one who rules over heaven and earth is in control. And from his perspective, he will make it all a sea of glass. Oh, Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see this wonderful vision. For Heavenly Father, sometimes it feels as if the seas are rolling over us. Life is full of chaos and turmoil. 
but give us eyes to see as John saw in your spirit. To know that, O Heavenly Father, you are seated high and above all the affairs of this world, seated on a throne before a sea of glass. Not distant from our problems, O Father, for you send to us your spirit and your son is there with us in the midst. He mingles with the lampstands. But Father, you are sovereign. And you have promised these amazing blessings to us as you've promised them to your churches. And oh, how we pray that you would gird us with strength to believe this. Father, give us such a taste for your son that we're not tempted by the temptations of the world. Give us such confidence in him and his glory that we are not threatened by any of the threats of the world around us. That, Father, we, like Antipas, your faithful witness, might be faithful witnesses ourselves. Be with us this week. Let these words not be taken and plucked from our hearts, but let us meditate upon them that we might grow deeper in our relationship with you and walk faithfully faithfully before you, our Lord and God. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. This has been a production of the Dwark Hill Study Center. All our lectures and classes are available for free streaming or for purchase on CD and download at dwarkhill.org. Please visit our website to receive more information regarding the Study Center and upcoming events, and to view articles and blogs from our contributors.